Welcome back to the Ownership Economy. In this episode, Martin and Jahid connect with Anthony Semino, Head of Policy at CARSA. The conversation discusses challenges and opportunities in the US policy arena to advance broad-based ownership. Anthony walks us through the history of current roles on the books at the SEC and IRS, why they need updating for the world today, and how his past as an operator in Washington, D.C. informs his current work and approach. Investors, startup founders, and policy workers will all enjoy this episode. Anthony, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So we like to start these things out by hearing a little bit about your background, your origin story, so to speak. Tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today. Yeah, well, today I'm uh, head of public policy at a company called Carta, and I've spent my career in public policy. I've always been interested in it. I've seen what it can do when it works well and affecting people's lives. And so I always wanted to engage in it. And like so many others, I came to Washington, D.C. after college to try and get involved in public service and was fortunate enough to work for the Committee on Financial Services. And financial services was something I was always very passionate about. Um, I believe it really helps people climb that economic mobility ladder, whether that's access to deposit savings, access to loans for homes or college, small business loans, even insurance to mitigate some risk. And so I've always wanted to figure out how we create a system that broadens access to more people and give them more opportunities. While I was on the committee, we went through the financial crisis and I saw what that looked like and how important it was to not only have a resilient financial system, but one that really does support more and more people. And so I've spent the past 15 or so years of my life really working through financial services issues and trying to do a better job of creating a more sustainable economic model. And the more time I spent, the more time I realized a lot of that had to do with how do we help people own more assets that can grow over time. And that brought me to Carta. Walk us through a little bit of on on what you were doing in those first four years of your career. Um, I think a lot of people don't understand what the Committee on Financial Services does, um, and also what it was like to be kind of in the room while we were going through the GFC. Yep. Yeah, so the Committee, on Finan- <laughs> the, the Committee on Financial Services has the jurisdiction to oversee basically all financial services, legislation, regulation, and how the the system itself functions. And so just to take a step back, Congress has a number of different committees. They all oversee a certain jurisdiction. That's the financial services jurisdiction. And so in normal times, it's what are bank capital rules and how do they oversee and drive regulators to propose them in certain ways? And other times it's what are the insurance standards and regulations for things like terrorism risk insurance or national flood insurance? So for the most part, it's something that not a lot of people see in the headlines. But as the financial crisis took hold in 2007, 8, and 9, it became the only thing people focused on. And during that time, we were obviously trying to wrap our arms around what was happening in the markets, where was it contained, and where was it spilling into. And what started out in the mortgage markets clearly moved beyond that and moved into not only defaults on mortgages, but a broader recession that drove asset values down, took away people's jobs and livelihoods, and eroded a lot of their savings. And so the committee working with the executive agencies, whether those are Treasury, FDIC, and of course, the White House itself, really tried to understand how to arrest that crisis. How do we actually stop the bleeding, if you will? And then following that crisis, how do we put in place a regulatory regime that bolsters the resiliency of the financial system, but also does so in a way that still rewards 
whether it's entrepreneurship, growth, and commerce, and ultimately creates that broadened economic opportunity. A lot of that manifested in what is now called Dodd-Frank, which is the regulatory regime for much of the financial services sector. How how quickly could kind of the average, so I just remember reading all the books on the global financial crisis, and um, it seems like there's just a, a very small group of people in a room, like solving the world's problems, right? That's essentially how most of these biographies <laughs> go. Um, how quickly um, does kind of the, when, when something this big hits uh, the government, how quickly does an understanding of what's going on and what needs to happen kind of penetrate through the different layers of the government or, um, because a lot of these books, it, it appeared that it took a long time for anyone to really understand it. It seemed like the average, the average kind of member of the federal government for years didn't understand what was going on. What was your experience internally? Yeah, plus I, I like to even like anchor that too, like a good way to think about it is like, just think about all the press that came out with SBV and signature and all the failures. And people were like, overwhelmingly in our circles, people were like, Oh, it's really great to see people act fast this time, right? So, yeah. like the implication being that you know they were just sitting on their hands. So, yeah, plus one would love to hear more on that. Yeah, and there's not one answer. Obviously, it depends on the familiarity of the specific policy matter or issue. Um, but I do think it goes to one how we think about responding to things, and it's going to start with those folks that are in the know and working through it. But the issue is oftentimes they can't act unilaterally. And that's by design. And that's frankly a good thing for public policy and the US population writ large. And so when you think about this, frankly, a lot of us, myself included, had to learn more about what does a credit default swap look like? Why is that critical? Why is this affecting somebody with a standard 30-year mortgage? Why is this ultimately affecting the assets that banks are holding and whether or not they're willing to make loans? And this cascading effect. And I'd be willing to say people at the upper echelons of Treasury and FDIC and in you know, certain congressional committees like the financial services really did understand what was happening. But it's then their job to not only think about how do you craft a response, but how do you communicate what is happening and what needs to be done to more people to get their buy-in? Because as much as Ben Bernanke, who was the chairman of the Federal Reserve, and Hank Paulson, who was the secret Treasury Secretary, could act in many cases, and if you look at a lot of the literature in many cases, they felt like they were probably acting beyond their authority. They were so concerned, however, they were willing to take that risk and operate in some of those gray areas, but to address in a more systemic manner and put in place real backstops and ultimately a regulatory regime after the fact, they needed Congress to buy in. And outside of the Financial Services Committee, and even then some of the really senior members it was a real job to communicate to more people what was happening, why it was important that we act and to get their buy-in. And that didn't happen overnight. And so it does take time to kind of, if you will, work its way through the necessary parties. And when you're in a crisis situation, that can be very problematic. I think as much as there are people that might complain that we got things wrong, and I'm sure we did, I do think a lot of the folks, especially key decisions maker at the time, were not only doing their best, but actually took a lot of the right decisions and put in place uh, the, the measures to really arrest a lot of that downturn at the time. And do you do you feel like the government has in some ways built muscle memory around that over the last 10 years? Or do you feel like it's the same sort of same sort of process that you saw back then? I think that there is better muscle memory and appreciation for the risks involved in things like financial services. Um, there was, I mean, I would say 
uh, long-term capital management, which was for folks that are unfamiliar, a hedge fund back in the nineties that had so much counterparty risk when it fails, the federal reserve brought many of those counterparties into a room to figure out how they could get a private sector solution. That was as big of kind of a system systemic risk we had seen in years. Um, and then all of a sudden the great financial crisis happened, you know, 10 or 12 years, 10 or 11 years later. And I don't think we had an appreciation for what a narrow sector of the economy, which albeit was large, but when people thought about mortgages and then what the risk layered onto it, they didn't understand what that actually meant, not only for that sector, but what it meant for the larger economy. I think today we've got a better appreciation for how systemic risk works. I do think, however, every development in the market changes things. And you know, as much as the government, and I'll be the first to say this, tries to figure out how to stop that traffic accident that happened last Wednesday at two o'clock, not the one that's going to happen next Wednesday, because it's hard to predict. It's not going to be perfect, but I do think we have an appreciation looking forward for what risk can look like and the implications uh, for the broader economy. Makes sense. And so we come out of that environment, right, where we move into this, this ultra low or zero rate um, environment that effectively had the this effective um, making it anyone with financial assets um, see asset appreciation over the last decade, significant asset appreciation over the last decade. But the vast majority of Americans don't have financial assets. So can you talk a little bit about the state of ownership in the U.S. today and and what it looks like and, and kind of this bimodal economy but that we have where a certain group of people have financial assets, another group of people don't and, and the implications? It's a great, great point. And it's one of the key learnings that I I think that we spoke a little bit about, but has since been lost for a lot of people is post-financial crisis, so many Americans were trying to repair their financial situation and rebuild savings, pay down debt, figure out what their housing situation might look like. While there was another strata that was able to not only hold the assets they had as they appreciated again, but in many cases, purchase new assets, whether they were doing that with their own capital or to your point with a zero interest rate environment, borrowing money to buy more assets. And for you know 10 or so years, we had this great asset run up. And I think that's why so many of us are focused on how do we broaden asset ownership? And one of those markets that has developed is private markets. And for the past you know five to 10 years, we have seen that become a larger and larger swath of the economy, where over the last two years each, we've seen more equity issued in private markets than in public markets. And so what Carta focuses on and what I focus on from a policy perspective is how do we broaden access to private markets? And we think about that in kind of two key buckets. One of those is the investor access and the other is the employee side of it. And I'm sure we'll talk about those later. But I think to your core question, what does that asset ownership look like? Well, it's definitely increasing and we're indexed at Carta a little bit more towards venture. But unfortunately, we, we see it distributed unevenly. And so what Carta's got access to is we've got around 35,000 companies on the platform, around 6,000 investment vehicles. And so we can see the ownership graph of a lot of private markets. And as a result, we're able to run analysis there. And when we look at the labor force, it's not distributed well between women, people of color, and of course, men and white men in particular. And so for instance, for women, around 47% of the labor force is comprised of women, so nearly half. And they're about 36% of the employees receiving equity in private markets, but they only get around 28% of the value. 
That gets even worse when you think about race and diversity. So for black individuals, they make up around 12% of the labor market. They're around 7% of the employees receiving equity, but they only get 3% of the value. In Latina, 18% of the labor force, 9% of the employees receiving equity and 6% of the value. And so we wanna drive ownership and we wanna figure out how we can become more evenly distributed across race, gender, ethnicity, geography. So there's more access to opportunity because you're right. Not only was that strata in place before that asset appreciation, but post that strata or that bifurcation is even broader. And just in those numbers that you just gave us, is that because um, people of color, minorities, women are not uh, in management positions or is there actually discrimination even within management as to who is actually receiving the equity, the average equity grant? So I would be reticent to say we know the exact causal factors, but some of the contributing factors that we think are probably in place are one, how do we think about hiring more diversified workforce broadly? And that includes from junior roles all the way up to senior, but especially in junior roles, how do we then drive them up the pipeline for promotion? Importantly though, not only hiring broadly, how do we think about hiring for key functional roles? So when you look at the equity data and compensation data in itself, we see company or people in finance and engineering making more than communications and HR. But more often than not, women and people of color get hired into communications and HR. So how do we think about broadening functional access? And then the other thing that was actually particularly interesting to me is, this was from the study, not this past year, but two years ago, is we saw a better job of hiring diversified candidates into positions. But as companies scaled and need to hire faster, they reverted to that core population that they either knew from their network or that was more ubiquitous in the higher in the application process, which tended to be white males. So even though you might see a bump initially, when that scale happened, you saw it kind of revert towards that default, let's you know, hire from our network. And so I wouldn't say there's like discrimination or anything in particular. I think there's systemic issues that we're trying to get at here, but it's hard to say it's a causal on this piece, but those are some of the contributing things that I've noticed in the data. Interesting. Okay. So another area of your work is essentially trying to figure out how do we make sure that the regulatory bodies and the policy environment in the U.S. supports ownership. And a big function of that is um, the role that the SEC plays. Um, you've written extensively about this. Um, I wonder if you could just walk us through why the rules that the SEC comes up with have such a profound impact on ownership in the U.S. Yeah. And when we think about the SEC, which is the primary capital markets regulator, it's important to know that its mission is basically threefold. One is how does it protect investors? Two, how does it establish and ensure fair and efficient markets? And three, how does it help capital formation or help people raise money? And it really does its best to carry out those missions or the prongs of its mission. But I think there are some trade-offs there. And if it over-indexes towards some, and in particular things like investor protection, ultimately it can become very restrictive and diminish the ability for more people to invest and own assets. And the most prominent of this is something like the accredited investor rule. But as we talked about post-financial crisis, the regulatory body is not only there for a crisis, but how do you think about building a system that creates a more sustainable economic opportunity for more people. And that's why we work even outside of crisis with government officials to build a policy infrastructure that actually supports innovation, that supports ownership on that front. 
And so what are the, some of the things that you see right now within the SEC that maybe not concern you, but you feel are impediments to developing more owners in the U.S. or build, building more broad-based ownership among um, the average worker within the U.S.? Yeah. So I think the most prominent is the accredited investor rule, which is a regulation that determines who can and can't invest in private companies. And for the most part, this is based on financial thresholds, wealth and income. But what is important here is, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, private markets have become a bigger and bigger swath of our company or our economy, excuse me. And as companies stay private longer and those that do go public, do so later, we're seeing more growth in private markets. So to restrict investor access means those investors are missing the opportunity to not only own that asset, but own it when it's appreciating the most, and then also create a diversified portfolio. And so that's why something like a credit investor, which restricts that access based on how much you make and how many assets or how much you have on the bank, ultimately further exacerbates who's accessing these assets to grow their wealth and then who's left behind. And so that's particularly important, not only just because it's in place, but it's also a national standard. And so when you look at the standard of you need to make $200,000 to qualify as an accredited investor or have a million dollars in assets to qualify as an accredited investor, that might be difficult to do, but it's definitely easier in places like San Francisco or New York where you've got a median income, let's say, of $126,000 or so. In places like Atlanta, where we're seeing the growth of the venture ecosystem, it's even harder to do, where the median income is around $70,000. So not only is the national standard just inherently problematic as the only on-ramp to qualify for an accredited investor, but it also disproportionately affects regions outside of those high-income areas like New York and San Francisco. One of the things when you're talking about this that kind of strikes me is, I mean, it'd be helpful to understand why the SEC originally didn't want individuals investing in private markets. What was the original rationale there and how did that framework come about? It's a really good question. And I think we should start with private markets are different than public markets. Private markets have less transparency. If you're a company operating in them, you don't have to disclose nearly as much as your public market counterparts. And there's less liquidity. So if you own a public equity uh, issuance share of Apple, for instance, you could sell that, buy that at will. If you own a company, for instance, a car to share, you can't necessarily sell or buy at will. And so there are different types of risks in place. Now, I think that there are different types of rewards as a result of those risks. And that's why we think about this not in the value judgment of one's better versus the other, but what's more appropriate for the investor, what's more appropriate for the company. But given that different profile, the SEC wanted to restrict investor access to private markets, and they didn't necessarily know how to value specific companies, or they didn't want to become a merit regulator on that front. So what they did was they put in place restrictions to ensure that the people investing in those markets had financial resiliency and the wherewithal to withstand losses. Now, as a result, though, when this market grew and companies stayed private longer, more and more people that weren't already wealthy missed out on these growth opportunities. And that exacerbated that bifurcation of wealth and income, wealth and income inequality. Okay. And you actually write about this a little bit because there's, there's now these kind of proposals around changing reg, reg D disclosures um, 
when going through financings. And you write, I think it was in TechCrunch, something, um, but these disclosures carry significant financial costs for small private companies, and they carry the extra risk of exposing sensitive financial information to competitors and large corporate incumbents. So how can the average person who's living in Atlanta get enough information right, to make sure that they're making the right decisions while at the same time when the average company is issuing um, you know, uh, a new issuance of, um, or raising capital, I guess is the better way to put it. Um, mm-hmm. they don't have to disclose much at all or anything at all, um, to investors, um, that are participating that are accredited. So like, how do you, where do you see the balance there? It's a really good question. And that's actually what the SEC is focused on a lot right now. And there's a couple of points to this. One is, Wealth and income don't necessarily equate to sophistication. And what we're also focused on is how do we create more on-ramps to become accredited investor? So whether that's through a sophistication test or specific sector expertise where I might be a doctor and as a result, I might have insights as to how this life sciences or healthcare company is navigating a current process. I think there's ways where we can get more investors who might not qualify through wealth or income, but have the sophistication and the proactive engagement to be successful investors. And we want to create on-ramps for them. I think to your point, though, it's still got to be a situation where how do they make informed investment decisions? And I think it's a misnomer that private companies don't necessarily give out information. It's different from what they're required to in public versus private markets. But in most circumstances, while a private company is raising money, it will provide information to prospective and current investors. Now, it's important that those investors feel comfortable with that level of information disclosure. And if they need more information, they can obviously ask for it, and it may or may not be furnished. But that all goes into whether or not an investor should invest in that company. But I think what's important is different companies, especially at these early stages, don't necessarily have that standardized metric. And so they might be not only at a different stage, but a different sector. And what their goal should be is to report the pertinent and important financial information to their investors and business information to their investors and prospects versus how do I just comply with something that's not actually appropriate and that actually can get lost a lot of signal on that bigger noise. So it is a little bit of a misnomer to assume that private companies don't disclose that information. But I think what we get concerned about just to pull this all together is when you think about investor protection and limiting access to these types of companies, in many cases, what we get concerned about is it's investor protection through investor preclusion. And so as a result, they're not able to gain and benefit from companies that are willing to disclose this information, that do have traction, that do have the opportunity and can help these investors not only realize returns, uh, but ultimately diversify their portfolio. I think that's an interesting point too. When you look at the last probably two, two and a half years of VC since the pandemic, right? Like, mm-hmm. so another thing you touched on is the regs that are going to be that are being considered for uh, touching private equity and venture capital. And so, like, I can maybe I want to dig into that a little bit, you know, in a self-interested way as well, because since I am a VC, um, really just to get your perspective on this a bit, because where I'm seeing it coming from is that 
you have these, um, I don't know if you'd call them hit pieces. It depends on your opinion, but all the stuff that happened post FTX, right? People were like, look at this, like all they did to give this guy $400 million is they're like high-fiving in the chat of, in, in the zoom chat and like, you know, doing their 15 minutes of diligence. And so it looks like, you know, on the outside, people are like, Oh, we, you know, to a regulator, you know, no, we're not, I'm not in those circles, but it's like, they looked at this like, Oh, we should be doing something about this. And like you said, uh, it seems like they're going with, you know, sort of preclusion, right? Looking at this and saying like, ah, oh, well, we should just raise the bar and make it harder. But, you know, you point out some really interesting costs there. Like if they run with this, how do you see that unfolding in, in VC? It's a really important point and one that we don't talk about enough, but fraud is fraud. Whether you're a public company, a private company, if it's fraud, the SEC and law and enforcement can come after you. And that's what we saw with FTX on that front. And I think it's also important to know that just because you're a private company doesn't mean you're not regulated, even outside of that fraud point. If you're issuing a product or service, there is likely a regulatory body that's overseeing it, whether that's a medical device, some sort of marketing material. And so as a result, we don't want to assume that private companies aren't regulated. I do think that there are some important things that investors should be thinking about, and it's going to be a case-by-case -case basis, but we don't want to preclude them from the opportunity to do this, especially if they've been able to opt in and pass some sort of sophistication test, or they've got sector expertise or the financial wherewithal. I do worry that we are seeing a bit of an overcorrection where the SEC and other agencies are trying to really put in place parameters that not only try and satisfy investor protection, but help them get their arms around more and more in private markets. And in particular, there is an expectation that if you put the right rules in place, you can increase the transparency and compliance burdens on private companies and private funds, push more private companies public faster, and ultimately, as a result, get investors access once they go public versus allowing them access to the private markets. I have an issue around that because I think it's important that companies go public when it's appropriate for them to go public. I don't right. think that should be a decision based on a arbitrary regulatory standard. But for instance, Carta itself is a growing company and we still operate in private markets. And that gives us the opportunity to make long, innovative bets and investments in our company to continue to grow our products and services to serve our customers. More public companies have to create a more predictable quarterly by quarterly revenue model, and that's appropriate for them at the right time. But what we don't want to necessarily see is investors are precluded from these growth stage companies, and these growth stage companies and funds have increasing burdens, transparency requirements, and they're pushing the companies public faster. No, that makes a ton of sense. Well, Martin, but I guess it, it, it does, but the average person in Atlanta, even if they're sophisticated, is not doesn't have the same portfolio diversification that a VC has, right? And so like, I, I would feel that the SEC in this situation should have almost like a, a series seed financial statement or minimal disclosure statement that's part of, of um, the regulatory filings. I mean, um, I see it from both sides, right? Because, mm -hmm. and, and not only on the, I guess we should focus a little bit more on the venture side, um, and then we can get into kind of the, the startup side, but, um, from the venture perspective, you know, one of my classmates was, was Mike Rothenberg, who, you know, I actually spent time in class with and, and so, you know, and so it's, it's, uh, I mean, I guess that's an example of fraud, but it's also an example of like this guy, there's very little 
you know, disclosure that he had to do when raising that first fund and then the subsequent second fund. Um, um, and then another classmate, I guess, was, you know, just exited um, Tesla with 560 million because he was able to accrue value um, as CFO there for 13 or CFO for four years, but working there for 13 years. So I, th- I feel like the SEC needs to play a role here in mm-hmm. terms of disclosure requirements. I feel like the disclosure requirements, having raised capital and having had to put out a reg. Reg D um, uh, uh, disclosure, like it's a complete joke, right? And so, like, what, what, what? When you guys think about this internally, about the staging or the policies that you want, like, how do you frame this? Where, given these tensions, I think you're getting at an important point, and that is, for us, they're not mutually exclusive. Just because we want to give investors access doesn't mean we shouldn't think about investor protection. And sometimes that's done through things like disclosures and transparency. But to protect investors, we shouldn't preclude them. And so for to take your example, one in Atlanta, you're 100% right. Your average investor, whether in Atlanta or even in San Francisco, is probably not going to have the same access to either capital or kind of industry knowledge as maybe a large established venture fund. But it doesn't mean they shouldn't be able to start running up that ladder. But how do you think through things like sophistication? How do you think through things like education and making sure they understand that even if you qualify as an accredited investor, your portfolio probably shouldn't be one company. And if that's all you can invest in, maybe you need to wait and understand a little bit more about how you do some portfolio construction to create diversification. Now, that's not necessarily the role for Carta. It's not necessarily a role, depending upon your opinion as to like the SEC of like what you can and can't invest in on portfolio construction. But right now we see this very broad based binary of like, you're either in or you're out. And if you're in, because you have a certain amount of money, have at it. If you're out, hopefully the company still grows when they go public. So yeah, I, I, was la- the- I, was, I was laughing a bit just because your portfolio construction comment is very pertinent. Actually, it's not just to the general public, right? I actually think that that accreditation, focusing on that alone would probably be a great wedge to open things up because look, as speaking as a you know, professional, sophisticated investors, GP of a, of a venture firm. When I speak to other, you know, there's probably 50 to hundred in that, in that range of other funds that we frequently engage with. And I'm not, I'm not picking on anybody in particular. I just think that uh, the air around understanding portfolio strategy and construction is much, you know, higher. <laughs> it looks, you know, it's kind of like higher level than it actually is in reality. So like, I'm pretty sure that there are, is there are plenty of folks in the long tail who can understand the basics of this and build a portfolio that's, like you said, actually reflects a, a strong approach to risk management. And that's yeah, but I would, I would, I would, I would still push back on that job because you have information flow that the average, average person that is not going to have. I mean, how many decks do you sure. look at? Oh, well, it's, it's not just, I'm making a different point, right? We're talking about like, if you just look at, if you have, if you consider I have zero information advantages, then decks, pitches, et cetera. If we just look at historically, what, what number of investments should you hit if you want to kind of manage a certain amount of risk in the private markets? We know those numbers and that's actually freely accessible information in the scientific literature, mm-hmm. right? So starting there, I think is an interesting space. And of course, once you get in the door, as Martin pointed out, you're going to have an information arbitrage advantage, of course. Yeah. Well, I think, Martin, to to your earlier point, though, I think that there is an appetite for how do we think through creating more, whether it's disclosures to investors or more of an appreciation as to kind of those pertinent financial points. That doesn't, however, uh, 
mean every company's got that same level of information, whether they are on their journey at series seed or series C or in certain segments. And I think it becomes hard to figure out how the SEC might regulate on something like that. But there is a, I think there's a willingness, especially if it comes with the trade-off of increased access, how we might think about increased disclosure. It's just a matter of what we don't want to see is an overcorrection where all of a sudden that disclosure comes out there, there's no increased access. And then companies still in that building stage are not only disclosing information that might put them at a competitive disadvantage when they're still very nascent, um, but ultimately increasing a lot of their burdens and compliance without actually serving the needs of investors and prospective investors on it. But I, I take your point and I, I don't disagree. It's just a matter of how we think about those trade-offs of investor access for increased information. Just on the on the point of being at a competitive disadvantage. So this is another thing that you wrote in the, the TechCrunch article. Um, so in the UK, you create a company, you have to disclose your financials almost immediately. I mean, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Any UK registered company, you can go see kind of the financials, any of these companies at Companies House. Has that limited the amount of deals that are done in the UK? I wouldn't say it's limited the amount of deals that were done. And it's hard for me to like know like what that universe would look like without it or with it. Obviously, the UK is a very vibrant market, so I don't think it's been necessarily too problematic. I think, however, when we think about a regime, and we've actually talked and thought through Companies House and Cardis got operations there, um, what does that transparency look like and what does it give you? And as the SEC is considering these tri- these types of things, we're trying to be thoughtful and constructive around what those types of disclosures need to look like uh, if they're put in place. But what we don't necessarily want to see is private markets looking exactly like public markets, because at that stage, not only is the burdens there, but frankly, what we get worried about is this is where you see a lot of innovation. And what we want to continue to do is reward that long-term investment, that long-term growth trajectory. Okay. I feel like we've gone on, we've gone on for a while on kind of these potential changes to mm-hmm. what's happening at the SEC, but you also have, you know, a whole portion of the work that you're doing that's focused on um, policies that you guys are coming up with. And so maybe we can just focus a little bit more on the accreditation and exactly what is wrong with the way that the SEC expanded accreditation for accredited investors, why it didn't really help. Um um, and what are some of the ideas that you guys have that are specific around how people could become accredited more quickly? Yeah. And I wouldn't necessarily what the SCC did, and I'll talk about this in a moment, was wrong. But in 2020, maybe it was late 2019 or 2020, they, for the first time, decoupled the qualification standard from wealth and income and actually allowed sophistication on ramps. And for the most part, those sophistication on-ramps were through kind of three major tests, the Series 7, 65, and 82. I think for us, that was a welcome and positive step. The issue that we struggle with is those tests still require you to either be sponsored by a registered financial institution and or held in good standing by a state licensing regime. And so although it did expand the aperture of who can qualify as an accredited investor, it still keeps it fairly narrow to those that probably would have had access in the first place or shortly later in their career, uh, but are ultimately kind of on the cusp there. Our goal would be how do we make sure that anybody who's willing to put the work in, learn the issues, can have that on-ramp to become an accredited investor. And so whether that's a sophistication test like uh, FINRA, um, organized or an SEC organized sophistication test or some sort of sector specific um, kind of qualification standards. 
what we're trying to do is working with Congress who actually just passed some a slate of laws through the House Financial Services Committee and the House floor to expand those on-ramps. And I think to your point, though, the goal is not just to rip a credit investor out root and branch and say, good luck out there. It's how do we make sure the right types of standards are in place to enable people to qualify, but still have that wherewithal, that knowledge and sophistication to understand how to interact with this market, knowing that there's going to be risks involved. Makes sense. And then once you're accredited, do you think it's just fair game? Like I can, I should be able to take any percentage of my assets and invest. Like, do you think there's things that we should, should we create rules around that? Because I think like one of the reasons why some of these rules are so binary is it's just easier to restrict access, yeah. right? Because then you don't have to deal with the person who's kind of, you know, investing in a bunch of overvalued startups because they don't know about them and, and, you know, putting those on credit cards, right? The same sort of thing uh, with crypto. Well, that's an interesting comparison too, because it makes me think, Martin. Like, do you, do you think that if we open it up that wide, do you see like a major shift in people who participate in the lottery? <laughs> right, like that's. The I feel like. I feel like that whenever we have made financial services more available without a framework for educating people on those financial services, there has been a group of people who has been willing to take advantage of people who don't properly uh, understand the risks that that, that makes that sense. We're taking. And I think a lot of, you know, one of the, there, there's systematic inequality in the U.S. There's mm -hmm. systematic inequality of access in the U.S. around ownership, but there's also a, a group of people that were doing fine and then got taken advantage of and actually fell down the ladder or as a result of that. And so, and, and, you know, in the GFC, there was a big portion of that. People that shouldn't have been kicked out of their houses were kicked out of their houses, a totally different issue, Definitely. But, but I'm just wondering, like, of course, we should expand who should have access to these markets. Of course, like like the average person should be thinking about securities from a very young age. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think if I had been doing this at eighteen or nineteen, I wasn't. I wasn't the you know the most sophisticated guy. Um, I would worry, you know, about okay, can I just kind of go full tilt on this, or like how do we, like how do we limit the downside here? Yeah, I, th I think it's a really important point that. Not only are there different types of risks, but there are people out there looking to take advantage of those folks that might be coming into the market for the first time. And I, I can't always solve for that, save for, to your point, how do we just chop this into a very easy solution? And I'll be the first to say, unfortunately, policy often does default to how do we think about this in a fairly easy general term versus how do we solve for the right solution? And I wouldn't say necessarily like what we're thinking through is absolutely right, but I think it's trying to get past that this is easier, so let's do this, to how do we think about expanding opportunity while still enabling investor protection. And so I'd say there's a few different on-ramps here. Not only is there a sophistication test, which hopefully gets at some, perhaps not perfectly, but gets at some of your concerns, but I think there's an opportunity to say, okay, you can invest up to 10 or 20% of your portfolio. Or, okay, you can qualify as an accredited investor if you're investing through a fiduciary, which ostensibly has not only an obligation to you, but is a sophisticated allocator himself or herself. And so I think there's different ways to do this. And what we're trying to do right now is work with policymakers to figure out what that road looks like. I think for the most part, there is an appetite to figure out how we reform and revise this from this kind of bifurcated you're in or you're out standard, but it's not clear what it's going to look like 12 months from now for successful. But I think those are kind of the three to four different areas, adding the qualification through like a sector specific expertise that we would see as possible. I would note, however, the SEC 
is actually thinking about raising these financial standards. And so while we're trying to expand on ramps, what we're getting signal from, from the commission is that they actually want to increase the wealth and income thresholds to keep place with inflation and actually potentially do so on a retroactive basis since this was put in place in the 1980s. And so there is a little bit of a dissonance as to what we're trying to do and what policymakers are trying to do, as well as what the SEC might be trying to do. And that's why it's important to engage and have these conversations to figure out, is there a middle ground where we can think about expanding opportunity while still protecting investors? Cool. Makes makes a lot of sense. Um, so beyond the SEC, right, there's a lot of innovation that's happening. But before we get into some of the innovation that's happening, um, like what does Congress need to do to change uh, the law to support broader ownership? There's specific things that uh, limit kind of who, even if you're participating in a company, even if you get stock options, um, um, there's still, you know, a whole bunch of different reasons why you might not walk away with any wealth from those options. What are some some things that you're working on um, beyond the SEC that kind of support this idea of broader ownership? Yeah, and I think what you're getting at here is how do we think about the employee ownership bucket? And that's very key to where we need to drive a lot of this conversation because when you look at the last four decades and account for inflation, the wage for so many has largely remained stagnant. So how do we get people access to the upside? And that's not only upside that they're helping build, but frankly, a sustainable asset that can continue to appreciate over time without being capped. And so Carta itself is very focused on expanding ownership for employees. Our platform is enabling more and more companies to not only raise capital, but issue equity easier and track that equity and manage that equity. I think, though, there's a couple of things that we'd point out. One is for employees themselves, the current tax regime can often be problematic for realizing and optimizing what that equity looks like. Uh, And the most obvious, and I think we're ways off from this fix, but it's something we talk about a lot is realizing the value of that equity when you actually sell it is not often timed with when you owe the taxes on it. So there's something called the alternative minimum tax, where if you're making over a certain amount and your equity can contribute to that, you would owe taxes on it. There's also a certain type of equity option that a lot of employees get in early stage companies called the incentive stock option, whereas you're, I'm sorry, the non-qualified stock option, where if you're realizing the value of that equity, you would owe money on it even before you sell it. And that might not matter if you are a you know 45-year-old executive of the company because you might already have the cash to pay those taxes on it. But when you're a 23 or 25-year-old or you know somebody early in their career taking a chance to work at a startup and build, and much of your compensation comes from equity, and although that equity is appreciating and you owe taxes on it, but you haven't sold it yet, it puts you in a real bind. So how do we align tax liability with the sale of it is something we're focused on. Um, but I think broadly speaking, the more we can put in place to drive more ownership to employees, the better off. And that's not only in venture, but increasingly how we think about it from more and more traditional companies. Yeah. And I also think there's this, this framework also around these non-qualified stock options where you'll hire a contractor or you'll even hire an employee. The employee's at will though, right? Because we have yeah. such an at will environment in the US. And often what kind of unscrupulous founders will do or unscrupulous management teams is someone's not performing, they'll fire them before they hit a certain threshold that they have to leave the company. They have to immediately purchase those options within 90 days. Right. Um, and no one's going to do that. So, so it actually, there's, there's, you know, a confluence of the, the tax environment combined with labor law that kind of conspires against all, but the best when it comes yeah. to, um, 
uh, employee ownership in high growth companies, I think. Um, and then that's just employees, right? Sorry, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I like, I think there's a couple things here, and I'm really glad you brought up what we call post-termination exercise period, where after you leave a company, whether it's because you're leaving it and or you've been terminated, you typically have 90 days to exercise that option. Now, in in our efforts, we've tried to expand that. And there are plenty of companies who do this differently. Carta has what I call a mirror, where if I'm there for two years, I have two years to do it. But most companies actually still use that 90-day threshold. And it's very frustrating because somebody might have worked for a long time at that company and they're forfeiting the equity that they've earned because they can't, they, they, they might not even know about this sunset and B, they might not have the capital to not only exercise it, but pay taxes on it. And we really get frustrated on that. We do a lot of education around it. And although we push policymakers to change that and basically remove that 90-day sunset on the ISO option, um, we were not successful. We're still pushing it. Um, but that's why we continue to engage on it. How does Carta handle that then when, the, when you guys do this mirror? So at that stage, after 90 days, so the reason why the 90 days is in place is that ISO expires. Um, and as a result, it just became the default of that option it gets forfeited back to the, um, if you will, the employee pool inside the company. Um, Carter transitions that to an NSO option that has more longer duration. Okay. But the, the employee still pays a higher tax rate and has... Yeah, it's not a perfect solution, but at least you don't lose access to that option. And there are other companies that have like standard windows that are much longer that do the same thing. So again... You know, I think CARD is a leader in the space, but there are other leaders out there as well. I think importantly, when we looked at the data, if you recall, when COVID first hit, there was a raft of layoffs because everybody thought the economy was going to be, you know, basically um, moving into recession. We did see a lot of companies extend the PTAB at that time voluntarily because I think they saw that this not being fair of these employees didn't do anything wrong. This was just a larger recession looming in their minds. And so they basically did a lot of layoffs. So hopefully more and more companies see the importance of this as rewarding talent that's helped them build, but we've not been able to get policymakers to buy it just yet, but we're continuing to try. What's their, what's their beef with it? I mean, it seems like a, it seems like a, an easy win. Um, I wouldn't say that there's like an outright opposition to it. Um, I think that there are issues around like just adjusting tax codes, which can be complex. Um, and I would say to get into the nuts and bolts on this, like, not every company supports this. Uh, there's a reason why some companies keep that 90 days in place. And so yes. when you're thinking about policy engagement, policymakers like to know where the landscape is and they don't necessarily want to alienate you know, business on one side and other businesses on others if they can avoid taking a position or decision on it. So half of my job is not only can I get an issue raised, but can I incentivize people to act on it, even if that means they have to go against other interests on the other side? Um, so I'm you know, very proud that a lot of the companies, not only Carta, but companies Carta works with feel very strongly about this. Hence, we're able to go up there and talk about it. But I wouldn't say industry is a monolith on whether or not this uh, should be extended. Yeah, because like you think about it, like um, speaking as a VC, I, I say this, you know, occasionally people will connect with me and be like, hey, I'm thinking about being an entrepreneur or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, just remember that uh, we, we VCs have sort of in some ways co-opted the face of entrepreneurship as like one of the only ways that you can do it. But we're very expensive. Uh, equity is extremely expensive. You should think twice about this, right? Mm -hmm. And and if you're a founder on that side of the table, obviously it, it totally makes sense to me that people are like, wait, what? 
course we should keep the 90 day window that gives me optionality and retaining shares and putting them back on the cap table and attracting more talent. Why would I just do that? All right. So lock it up for two years, five years, nine years. Why would I do that? So yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's rational, but it's unfortunate because in in our opinion, somebody's earned that equity. Um, and we want to give them the option to do that. 100%. Yeah. Like to be clear, I completely agree with that position, but man, I can see why people would be on the other side of it. Um, I wanted to ask you actually, you know, since you guys are really thinking about all these various ways to on-ramp people into more ownership and employee ownership, and, you know, really, if they're thinking through this, um, one thing that we've touched on briefly a couple times on the pod, um, is, uh, investment clubs, right? These unregulated entities where people just kind of pool their capital and invest together. So like having you, uh, a policy expert and, and the lawyer on, I'd love to know, like, how has Carter thought about how to engage with investment clubs in any way? And like, how, how would they, right? Since they're unregulated entities. And I feel like every, every interaction I've ever had with Carta, AngelList, whatever it is, hits me with that. How are you, how are you accredited first? <laughs> right. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts there. Well, first off, let me just clarify, not a lawyer, much less none of this is financial advice. So <laughs> I don't want to miss it. No, no, you're <laughs> fine. I hey, still want to disclosure. Yeah, you don't exactly. have to put it in the front. Huh? Perfect. Exactly. Um, <laughs> So one, putting Carta aside for a moment, the investment clubs or the angel networks are such an important source of capital. When the SEC has done analysis and studies on this, it's typically within 100 miles that you'll see the series seed lead investor and the company. Now, to be fair, some of that's a little bit biased because San Francisco is such a small geographical place, New York such a small geographical place. But in reality, although capital is mobile, proximity still matters. And so it's really important when we think about accredited on-ramps, those on-ramps don't always necessarily just mean that that investor just sits in his or her home, but they think about how they're engaging that community, not only for education, but pooling capital, getting access to deal flow, learning, thinking through things, and potentially joining deals. And so when we think about that proximity, that's what's supporting in many cases, a lot of those local growth hubs. And that's why we really need to think through how we build not only more credit investors across the country, but then push them into those angel networks, which then in our minds, help many founders get their first opportunity. Because if you're a founder in Atlanta, you might not be able to pitch, whether it's Andreessen Horowitz or Lightspeed or major firms, but you might have access to friends and family or a local angel network. And in many cases, that will not only be your first check, but those can be guides, advisors, mentors that help you grow into a business that's got traction where institutional capital then might be interested. And so we see that being a very important part of that startup ecosystem. And I think for Carta, that's one of the reasons why we do engage on policy. When we think of policy as infrastructure, supporting that helps facilitate its growth. From a product perspective, you know, we're constantly thinking through how we support different types of vehicles. And where we see a lot of that coming together is something like a special purpose vehicle. And for folks that may or may not be familiar with it, that's typically a vehicle that's you know defined for the purpose of investing in one particular issuer, but has a number of different investors inside of it. And we see a lot of angel networks you know, potentially launching an SPV or something like that. But for us, it's how do we drive education and engagement in those areas? How do we create a policy environment that helps them grow? And then as products come to fruition to support them, we're constantly thinking through and identifying friction points and opportunities for there. Um, and so that's how we kind of think about it broadly. I also think like the the notion of social capital, right, which can be kind of a, geo, a, a geographic thing, can also apply if we go back to 
um, what we were talking about on employee ownership can also apply to the type of job that you're able to get, right? And so the other big challenge here is contractors, right? And Rule 701 um, mm -hmm. and who actually um, can get access to equity. Can you just touch a little bit on that? I know we're jumping a bit back and forth between yeah. the investment side and the owners and the the employee or, or the laborer side, but I think they're they're actually tied together by this concept of social capital and mobility given lack of access of social capital. Well, I think that they're also just tied together insofar as how we think about aligning incentives and vision and mission. And when founders own a stake in the company, employees own a stake in the company, and investors own a stake in a company, not only do you have an engaged and aligned group, but it's a group that's focused on a longer term vision, not just a how do we think about next quarter. And so I think there's alignment across that as well as social capital. But to your specific question, 701 is a regulatory avenue through which you can issue equity or shares uh, to, in most cases, employees, advisors, and some contractors. Um, and where we've seen this become an issue is it didn't necessarily account for what we think of today as the gig worker economy. And what we're trying to do is look at the value so many of these platform companies or companies that are deriving not only you know, in some cases, um, contributions from these gig workers. But in many cases, these gig workers are the engine of the company. And we don't want to mandate that they have to pay their contractors, but we want to make sure that 701 enables them to do so if that makes sense for not only the company and for the contractor. And what we're trying to do right now is get some clarity around that. Um, it's not that the rule itself um, changed in a negative way. It's just that the market itself grew in different ways and the rule hasn't kept up with it. And so right now our focus is working with legislators, there's bills out there, um, but can we get some clarity to ensure more contractors and gig workers can get paid with equity when it's appropriate for them and for the company? Yeah. And this goes back to why I was asking about that muscle memory earlier, right? Because it just seems that the the innovation is happening at such a pace now that you know to the extent that our legislators cannot keep up with it. Um, we're just waiting for a crisis to happen before anything changes. Mm -hmm. Then we put in place these uh, binary rules um, that get us into the policy environment that we're in today. Um, so this has been a super depressing hour thus far on all the ways that none of us <laughs> are going to have ownership. Um, but uh, what are some innovations that you're seeing, like either at the state level or or maybe overseas, we were like, wow, that's really cool. That's something that they're doing that's interesting. We should we should think about that at the federal level in the US, like, or maybe not even think about it at the federal level, but these are just these are just super interesting ways of expanding ownership. Well, maybe it's because I live in this that I'm not that depressed by this. I still see optimism here. Um, one, I think we are legitimately we're, we're about to about hand off the torch to to AI, you know? These are the final days. You're gonna that's have the AI next on your cap table. Yeah, exactly. Um I mean, one, just in general, like, is the policy formation process perfect? Absolutely not. But I do think on both sides of the aisle, and I might philosophically disagree with folks, I think people are doing their best to come up with the right policies. And as a result, I'm very optimistic we can get there. And I do think that that includes expanding access to the innovation economy and private markets and expanding access to more ownership. There are things that we're going to have to compromise on and things that we're going to have to solve together. But I think that's what's the debate, but that's what the debate is about. And I'm glad we're actually having it. I think for the investor side, there are unique innovations that we're watching and tracking, not only accredited investor, but for instance, how we think about fund of funds and how they're regulated and why that's particularly important. So if you're an established fund, 
in the VC phase, in the VC space, you typically can't have more than 20% of your portfolio if you're a VC outside of qualifying investments. One of the non-qualifying investments is an investment in another fund. What we're trying to do is make that a qualifying investment. So an established VC, whether they're in San Francisco or New York, can basically seed other funds out there in different markets or with different expertise. And we think that that can be a real ladder for a lot of emerging and first-time fund managers. You can't see this right now, but I'm praying on camera, please. (laughs) So like, and that's just like, we think that that is a change that should be embraced. We've got a lot of work to do. It's not going to happen overnight. And frankly, there is some opposition to it, but that's again, why we wake up in the morning and engage on it. So I think that in addition to accredited are some of the interesting innovations we're seeing on the investor side. On the employee side, uh, as we discussed, there are post-termination exercise period, there's qualified small business stock, which is a real incentive for startups to attract capital and talent and helps more employees and founders and owners generally realize their gains by giving them exemption from capital gains if they hold their stock for long enough. Um, But I think that there's also just some straightforward stuff. And as much as we want to work with companies that are in the venture space, we're also thinking about traditional companies and how we help them realize the power of ownership and employee ownership in particular, and helping them make the transition to that employee ownership model. And so oftentimes that's thought of from like an ESOP plan, but more and more of these corporate structures are things like partnerships and LLCs. And although there's different regulatory treatment for them, we want to create a system in which they can easily issue ownership or ownership-like equivalents to employees to help them attract that talent, retain that talent, and improve performance of the of the talent and the company. And so we're doing some stuff at a federal level, but interestingly, we're also working increasingly with states. And there are some, Colorado in particular, a leader in the space, where they're building tax credit and grant programs to help with conversion costs and ongoing administration costs. And we're working on things like education materials, because for us, if we can create more owners, not only does it improve the performance of so much of the economy, but frankly, it gives people that access to upside in a more sustainable economic model in their daily lives. And that's really the goal. Awesome. Well, this has been super informative for me um, on issues that I already felt like I knew a lot about, but but you clearly have a lot of depth in, in these areas and um, exciting the work that you're doing. For people that want to follow you online, um, where where should they go? Where do you write? Uh, so we write a lot on Carta's policy desk. Um, so visit us on Carta.com. And then we're also on LinkedIn, Anthony Semino. Uh, and then we put out a weekly newsletter uh, that can be subscribed to on Carta's policy desk as well. Um, I'm sure we can share the link and hopefully in the show notes. Um, but every week we cover the news and events, what they mean for the innovation economy, venture capital, startups, and employee owners. Uh, and then we also do a lot of webcasts and virtual events on our own as well. Perfect. Thanks so much for joining us. No, thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Ownership Economy. Don't forget to like and subscribe.